Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. It's a totally false accusation. I have absolutely no idea who she is. There's some picture where we're shaking hands. It looks like at some kind of event. That was former President Donald Trump in June of 2019 denying advice columnist E. Jean Carroll's claims that he raped her in a dressing room in a New York department store in the 1990s. Carroll has sued Trump for defamation, and that suit is scheduled for trial in April. In the meantime, Trump's sworn testimony was taken on October 19th at Mar-a-Lago, and parts of that deposition have been unsealed. Joining me is Bloomberg legal reporter Eric Larson. So, Eric, why did the judge unseal the deposition? Well, this was just an excerpt of the deposition that was actually unsealed, and it was it was unsealed by the judge because um, it was included, this portion of it was included in one of E. Jean Carroll's filings in the defamation and battery case that she filed against him. She was trying to argue that, you know, they didn't really need more discovery in this case because Trump had already been questioned extensively about the alleged rapes that occurred and uh, the defamation. So they're arguing that they need to wrap up discovery and move on. And their their evidence for this was to say, hey, look at all this all these questions that Trump already answered. Um, and they argued that that needed to be made public uh, under New York's rules. What struck me most about the excerpt is that Trump didn't hold back at all in the deposition. It seemed like he did everything that a lawyer would tell a client not to do. Yeah, it was definitely classic, you know, Trump. It was kind of what you might expect him to sound like uh, under oath in a case like this. You know, he didn't hold back in saying, for example, that he was not attracted to E. Jean Carroll and, and sort of trying to defend his statement, his allegedly defamatory statement, by the way, that she was not his type. And that's an argument that he made early on in 2019 when he was trying to uh, explain that he did not rape her um, and claimed that he had never even met her and had no contact with her whatsoever. Um, and he thought that it would be a, a good idea to say that she wasn't his type to sort of bolster that argument. Um, and that has been a, one of s- several statements that Trump made that has been at the sort of the center of this defamation case. And he was asked about that sort of extensively in this deposition and explained in every which way he could that he was not in any way possibly attracted to her and never could be. He called the suit itself a big fat hoax. And that's a word we've been hearing from him for many, many years. And Carol's lawyer called him on that. Yes, you know, she wanted to, I think, make the point that uh, Mr. Trump sort of calls a lot of things hoaxes that in fact um, are real. So, for example, uh, she asked him to explain, you know, why why he used the word hoax so often. And he sort of went into a long answer saying Russia, 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 Ukraine, 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 saying it was all a hoax, um, the impeachment hoax, you know, Obama spying on his campaign hoax, all these hoaxes. 
And Eugene Carroll's lawyer said, you know, what about climate change? You, you said, that's a hoax. And he said, yes, that is a hoax for the most part. And went on to say how the environmental movement was a hoax. And, uh, you know, made, made a lot, lot of comments like that that she sort of wanted to illustrate. Well, maybe when you say hoax, uh, maybe it's not actually a hoax. <laughs> but, you know, his transcript sort of speaks for itself there. Was his lawyer there to caution him or give him advice? His lawyer was there. Lena Haba was there. She um, objected, you know, here or there to some of the questions uh, that were asked or the way they were asked. But uh, there wasn't any indication on the transcript that she was interrupting her client to uh, get him to say or not say anything. So um, he was definitely very, very unfiltered. You know, that uh, whether or not a jury would make anything of this, you know, who knows? I mean, just because Trump has called a lot of things hoaxes doesn't automatically mean that Eugene Carroll's case is, is true. Um, it's just something that the jury will take into account when they're weighing uh, these allegations and, and the defense. So as far as the alleged attack, which he denies, he was also asked, have you ever kissed a woman without her consent? And he got aggravated with the attorney at that point. Yeah, it's hard to tell ex- exactly what his tone was, but he did. He said that he, uh, you know, he kind of thought about it for a minute and was like, I don't think I've had any complaints about that, um, except maybe from your client who is a, a liar or something to that effect. You know, then Carol's lawyer asked him as well, uh, you know, do you know what sexual harassment means? Um, and his response was, yeah, pretty much. That's actually where that particular excerpt of the transcript cut off. But, yeah, he, he was asked a lot of details about uh, his behavior with women. Um, he denied it, except to say that anyone who claims otherwise is, is lying. And it's worth noting that in this case, Carol's lawyers have already deposed uh, two women who previously accused Trump of sexual assault to sort of bolster uh, their argument that uh, Mr. Trump has this pattern of behavior. So we haven't seen those depositions uh, yet, but I'm sure that they will be uh, used if the case goes to trial. Even when he seems to get caught in apparent inconsistency, he tries to go around it, which is something we've seen before. He ended up calling Carol's publisher radical left-leaning. Yeah, he he did. You know, Carol's lawyer asked him about uh, some of his remarks that he'd made publicly that were in the case, you know, accusing Carol of uh, making these false allegations to try to sell a book that she had written in 2019. And he had made some comments about uh, her publisher being radical and left-leaning. He was asked about that, and it was pointed out to him that the publisher, HarperCollins, um, actually published his son-in-law, Jared Kushner's book. Um, and Trump's response was, well, could be, but they published some very bad ones, too. So he was sort of called out on an inconsistency there and just sort of brushed it off. I know that E. Jean Carroll said she saved the dress from the alleged encounter, and they want to do a DNA test on it. Has that test been done? Well, actually, I think that they were doing a DNA test and had found some some samples of human DNA, whether it's hair or things like that, and just wanted to try to get actually a swab of Trump's you know, cheek or something like that, the inside of his cheek, to get uh, a DNA test to compare it to. My understanding is that has not happened and that it may not happen. I believe at one point uh, Ms. Carroll's lawyer had said that she was uh, sort of willing to drop that just to get things moving along. And frankly, I, I do think that she has said she she believes she has such a strong case without it that she does not 
um, you know, need it. But I do not believe that that test has ever been done. Wow, that that is a surprise. There's a question of whether this suit can even go forward because he claims he made the remarks in the course of his duty as president. So tell us about D.C.'s highest court hearing that. Right, yeah. So we're waiting for a decision from the highest local court in D.C., the District of Columbia Court of Appeals, which is basically looking at this uh, a narrow sort of employment law question um, before this case can move forward in federal court in New York. So there's a federal law called the Westfall Act that protects all government employees from civil suits related to their jobs. So Trump is arguing, and in fact, the DOJ backs his argument here, that his denial of Ms. Carroll's claims in 2019 qualified as a presidential duty, that he was actually just responding to reporters' questions about her allegations, and that was it, that he needed to maintain um, Americans' faith in the White House, and that denying these allegations was just part of of doing that. Ms. Carroll argues that uh, Mr. Trump was just looking out for himself that the things that he accused her of, fabricating the attack, trying to sell a book, sort of conspiring with Democrats to politically hurt him, and and claiming falsely that she had accused other men of similar things. All these claims, she said, that goes too far. You were defaming me. That's not part of your job. But the D.C. local court, the D.C. Court of Appeals, will decide on this narrow issue of whether those statements that Trump made qualified as part of his job under local employment law. And if they rule against him, uh, then the case will be allowed to move forward to trial in April in federal court in Manhattan. If they rule in favor of Trump, then the case essentially ends here because of that federal law. But surprise, surprise, Trump has repeated his claims on Truth Social after he left the presidency. Yes. Now, that definitely a, a bit more problematic here for the president because Ms. Carroll, as I think a lot of people have heard just a few months ago, filed a new lawsuit against uh, Mr. Trump, accusing him of battery, essentially the rape allegation under a new New York law that has temporarily lifted the statute of limitations on these historical assault claims for one year. So she's one of many women who are filing battery or rape or sexual assault lawsuits against people. Trump was one of the first people sued under that law. So we still have that civil lawsuit accusing him of battery and That lawsuit includes a new claim of defamation over that truth social statement. So even if he's able to avoid this earlier lawsuit because he was president at the time, he'll still have this other lawsuit moving forward. And if, in fact, both cases move forward, Ms. Carroll is trying to combine them for a joint trial so that they'll all be heard together. Trump tried to have that suit under the New York sexual assault law dismissed. What were his claims? What was his reasoning? So Mr. Trump argued that the battery lawsuit filed under the New York Adult Survivors Act violated his constitutional rights under the New York State Constitution by depriving him of his due process rights, essentially making it, uh, you know, he's being accused of claims that are too difficult to refute because of their old claims, the witnesses, the evidence, everything is so outdated, um, according to him. And, you know, this is an argument we can probably expect to see a lot in a lot of these cases that have been filed under the Adult Survivors Act. Just so happens that his is one of the first. But in this case, the the judge uh, denied the motion to dismiss um, and has allowed the case to move forward. The judge said that that Mr. Trump could not question, um, you know, what the legislature's intentions were. Uh, when they passed this law. Uh, Trump had argued that they hadn't pointed to a specific injustice to justify 
lifting the statute of limitations, and the, and the judge just agreed that that was not true. And it, he used pretty harsh words, actually, um, to get an indication of what the justice system or the judicial system might think of of lawsuits challenging or claims challenging this law. This particular judge said that it was uh, lawfully passed and that the arguments against it were pretty weak. I'm wondering if Trump is going to argue that this it will interfere with his campaign and should be done right. after the election. I don't think that that is probably going to work out, um, <laughs> just based on what some of these, these judges have been saying. The first defamation case, one filed in 2019, that is already set to go to trial in April, I think April 11th, and that has already been set and is, is sort of written in stone. Whether or not the later the battery cases combined with it, that might mean that it needs to be delayed, or maybe it'll happen in April. But you know, he's already Trump and his three of his adult children and his company are also going to trial in October in the New York Attorney General's fraud case against uh, the company, and then in early 2024, there's another trial. Some investors who sued Trump and his his kids and his company for fraud over a multi-level marketing company that they promoted on the Celebrity Apprentice. That's another sort of big trial that's going to happen in early 2024. So these judges are setting these these trials knowing that Trump is running uh, for president again, and and with the idea that they can be wrapped up before he really has to campaign. But of course, that's just sort of the tip of the iceberg for some of his legal troubles as that happens. Yeah, I'm so curious. I'd love to know how many lawyers he's employing at once to fight all these civil lawsuits and the possible criminal cases. It it must be quite a few. Okay, I want to change topics now to another case you've been writing about. Russell Kong, the Versace better win. Come real far, but don't know where I'm heading. That's former tech entrepreneur Heather Morgan a rapper who dubbed herself on social media and in music videos as the crocodile of Wall Street. She's also an accused cryptocurrency thief facing trial with her husband. They're accused of trying to launder $4.5 billion of Bitcoin stolen from the Bitfinex currency exchange. And despite being under house arrest, she's got a new job at a tech company and a dispensation from the judge and the government to commute to it. Eric, tell us a little about Morgan. Heather Morgan and her husband, Ilya Lichtenstein, were arrested last February and charged with a money laundering scheme involving $4.5 billion of Bitcoin. At least that was the value of it then, stolen from the Bitfinex currency exchange. So they've denied wrongdoing. They've been under house arrest. And Ms. Morgan, you know, as you mentioned, she styled herself as a rapper. She's a former tech entrepreneur, but she used the rapper name Razzlecan and, you know, went a little bit viral on social media, that sort of thing. And, and with some of the videos that she would make and, and what she called herself the crocodile of Wall Street. So she has been under 24-hour home confinement for quite a while now. And some of her hearings are frequently delayed because they seem to be in some sort of potential plea deals. The government has said they're trying to resolve the case without a trial. She and her husband are facing something like 20 years in prison. So what happened? Her lawyer filed a letter with the magistrate judge in federal court in Washington asking to have the terms of her confinement modified so that she can leave on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays to go to New York City and work at the offices of her new employer. 
which was not named in the document, but she said that she would be working in a role as a growth marketing and business development specialist. And they asked to keep the name of the employer secret because of harassment that she had received on social media as a result of intense media coverage of the case. So we don't know what company this is. We really don't know anything other than that. But the government notably did not object to this, and the judge granted the request the same day. I'm really surprised the government didn't object to this because they've previously said that the couple had highly troubling overseas ties and fraudulent identities, as well as access to hundreds of millions of dollars in cryptocurrency. And when they were arrested, the government initially asked the judge not to allow them to be released on bail because they were a flight risk. Correct. And also the government has said as recently as November, I believe, that the case, as they continue to prepare for trial, regardless of whatever plea talks may be happening, that the case is going to involve potentially very sensitive national security evidence. So they had to get a special you know, order to only show the defense you know, a, a summary of some of their evidence because it was too sensitive and, and classified to show to someone who didn't have that clearance. So there's a national security angle to this case, too, which makes it even more interesting. But I feel like one way or another, we're eventually going to get some more information that maybe makes some of this make sense. But uh, yeah, the, the government does not seem to have a problem with this particular defendant charged in a serious crime going to work for a technology company and going into the city to be there in person. Maybe we'll learn more at the status conference set for next Friday, unless they delay that as well. Thanks so much, Eric. That's Bloomberg Legal Reporter Eric Larson. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. It's a case with legal, economic, and political ramifications. And it will be up to the Supreme Court to decide whether the United States can bring criminal charges against Turkey's state-owned Hulk Bank over allegations it helped Iran to evade economic sanctions by laundering billions in oil and gas revenues. I think it's pretty bizarre for this court to tell the president of the United States, as a matter of his national security exercise, that even though the Constitution doesn't prohibit what you're doing, even though a statute doesn't prohibit what you're doing, this court's going to prohibit your exercise of national security authority. That, talk about big steps. It is. That's huge. Other justices were concerned about whether allowing the federal prosecution to proceed might open the door to U.S. states targeting foreign nations as well. Here are justices Neil Gorsuch and Sonia Sotomayor. Then states would be free Uh, to try to bring lawsuits against Mexico for this or that, or perhaps China because of COVID, or who knows what a creative state prosecutor might come up with. I don't know how um, I would want to leave to the vagrancies of individual prosecutors, whether it's federal or state, the right to insult another nation by giving them this unbridled power to initiate suits. 
Joining me is constitutional law expert Harold Krent, a professor at the Chicago Kent College of Law. Hal, explain the main issue here. The issue is whether either state or federal courts, in this case a federal court, can try a instrumentality of a foreign government for a criminal offense. And in the first Crimes Act that we enacted after our nation was instituted, we had that the court had cognizance of all offenses against the United States. And so that would seem to suggest that foreign powers, foreign corporations were included within that jurisdictional provision. But at international common law, federal instrumentalities and federal states were rarely included in those kinds of criminal cases. So the question is whether that original grant of jurisdiction or subsequently under the Foreign Sovereign Immunity Act has Congress decided either yes or no to allow criminal prosecutions against foreign entities or foreign states. Hulkbank's attorney said the world has been around for like 7,000 years and no country has ever tried another country. But hasn't the U.S. sued foreign-owned corporations? They have. There have been several proceedings, but there haven't been many. And at oral argument, it was clear that there was only a handful that could be counted really in the 240 years of our nation's history. There was a discussion of several examples where the U.S. had brought criminal prosecution against foreign-owned entities, principally of Chinese and state-owned enterprises. There are many places in the world where such prosecutions are not permitted, and there is sort of a common law notion that foreign entities and closely held foreign corporations should not be subject to criminal suits. Now, foreign officers of those corporations can be subject to criminal suit, but not the corporations themselves. That's the common law rule. In this case, both President Trump and President Biden decided not to go against individual officers of Health Bank, the Turkish bank, but instead to go after the bank itself because it was important to set a standard and to prosecute the Turkish bank itself for its efforts to help circumvent the sanctions against Iran. One of the concerns, probably an obvious concern of the justices, was usurping the power of the president to make national security decisions. There was an anomaly that was discussed at the oral argument. On the one hand, shouldn't the administrations of Trump and Biden know best what's in the foreign diplomatic interests of the United States? And why should it be to the courts to decide that such prosecutions are not contemplated by Congress? On the other hand, if the position of the United States government is to be followed, that would allow prosecutions of foreign-owned entities in state court. And that would be a cumbersome embarrassment that state prosecutors could initiate charges and that the federal government could not easily intervene to stop those prosecutions, and wouldn't that disrupt diplomatic relations? Justice Elena Kagan asked about news reports that came out about the Trump administration at one point allegedly pressuring the Southern District to drop the case. Is there a question here about the power of the executive branch to quash cases that affect international relations, or was that just one point she made? There was a lot of discussion during the oral argument about what steps the president could take if a U.S. attorney in some district went ahead with a prosecution that would embarrass the diplomatic efforts of the government. And the representative of the Solicitor General's office was a little cagey in his response to those questions, saying that there was informal mechanisms, there's discussion, there's always good faith, but he could point to no concrete way that the president could stop a U.S. attorney from bringing such a suit other than possibly a public threat to fire the U.S. attorney for taking steps against the interests of the United States. And which way do you think the statutory interpretation 
leads? There's a very complicated statutory interpretations questions because of the first point, the 1790 statute seems to have no limitation at all in terms of prosecutions of foreign loan entities. And the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act seems to talk only about civil actions and not really about criminal actions at all. So much of the time, the oral argument was just trying to figure out what to do about these open-ended statutory terms that didn't seem quite to fit together. But in terms of the policy concerns, the twin axes, I think, of concern were One is, why should the courts be stepping in and saying this is a bad idea to allow prosecutions of foreign loan entities when it's really in the control of the executive branch, which is the expert in diplomacy? But on the other hand, because of the absence of a congressional admonition to states not to bring prosecutions against foreign loan entities, what is to be done about that? And I think at the end of the day, there's no good answer to those problems. Congress hasn't done a great job here. Congress clearly did not focus on the issue. And so the court is going to come up with some kind of coalition, I think, that might send this case back to the Second Circuit to try one more time to figure out what to do with this bank, or at least to make a more clear definition of what kind of state-owned enterprises could be prosecuted and what kind cannot, and what nexus of their activities to the jurisdiction of the United States is required before the prosecution can proceed. One possibility for a remand would be for the Second Circuit to determine whether any kind of international common law norm against criminal prosecutions of foreign entities can be read into the 1790 statute. Isn't that just kicking the can down the road? Because after the Second Circuit makes another determination, it's going to come right back to the Supreme Court. It might. This case might not be done. But it's difficult to discern which way various members of the courts were leaning, except that they were all troubled and they were not (laughs) particularly satisfied with responses from either of the advocates today. And it's a difficult issue because Congress has not been clear. So I'm not sure that there's going to be an easy resolution. The easiest resolution would be for the court to say either all prosecutions are permitted under the 1790 statute, or they might say that the Foreign Sovereignty Immunity Act in the 1970s has more clearly limited those kinds of cases and only will allow civil cases to be brought against foreign known enterprises, which would leave the administration with the only possible response would be to go after members of the bank individually and press criminal charges against them. Answering this requires a complex analysis. Tell us about it. So the first step is whether the 1790 statute um, applies to foreign states as well as to foreign-owned entities, or whether the sort of common law immunity principles should be read into it. That's the first step. And the second step is, no matter how you come out on the first step, did the Foreign Sovereign Immunity Act change that at all? Because did it address the criminal context? And again, the parties disagree. Then the third step is, even if you think that the Foreign Sovereign Immunity Act applies, then did it still allow for this criminal exception with respect to the commercial activities, and therefore you can continue with the criminal prosecution as long as you can show that the foreign actor was engaged in commercial activities that had a sufficient nexus to the United States. The court court may fracture on those issues because some may think that the 1790 statute controls. uh, Others may think that the Foreign Sovereign Immunity Act changed what the import of the 1790 statute was, and others may think that even if the 1790 statute has been changed by the Foreign Sovereign Immunity Act, that the commercial exception in the Foreign Sovereign Immunity Act may control 
as the Second Circuit, in fact, held, which would then lead to the possibility of, of the prosecution going forward. Has the Roberts Court been careful about intervening in cases involving foreign affairs? The Roberts Court has decided a number of cases with respect to foreign affairs. I'm not really shy about that kind of involvement. This case is a little different because the court comes at it only after the question has been decided by two administrations. And everybody says, look, it's up to Congress itself to set the parameters for what presidents should do and what kind of discretion they should exercise. And Congress was open-ended in the 1790 statute. And under the Foreign Sovereign Immunity Act, you could interpret it either way, that Congress only wanted to allow civil actions to go forward and only then under particular exceptions, or whether Congress simply just didn't think about criminal prosecutions at all because there's nothing specific about criminal prosecutions under the Foreign Sovereign Immunity Act. So both sides, I think, would be happy if Congress would get involved and set the stage. Thanks so much, Hal. That's Professor Harold Krent of the Chicago-Kent College of Law. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.